You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Your Brain on Facts, the book, chock full of topics that have never and will never be on the podcast. Available for pre-order now at yourbrainonfacts.com slash book. And by this fine program. The average cost of a three-credit-hour university course in America is $1,782. You could pay that, or... You could listen to the Deconstruction Workers podcast and get a semester's worth of college knowledge for free. Popular culture professors turn their academic knowledge towards all of your favorite movies, television shows, theater productions, and more for free. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is available at thedeconstructionworkers.com or on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Give us an hour and we'll make you smarter. Money back guarantee. At the 2017 South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, one of the exhibitions was about board games, slightly different versions of the ones normally seen on the shelves. Games like Pandemic, where players collaborate to solve global crises. Collection Deck, a less Renfairish analog to Magic the Gathering, and Kingpin, the Hunt for El Chapo. That one's pretty self-explanatory. The exhibit evinced a rich gaming history going all the way back to Kriegspiel, a Risk-style game enjoyed by the Prussian army in the 19th century. And the exhibitor? The United States Central Intelligence Agency. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. A lot of us are playing board games these days, and that's pretty fitting. Humans have been making board games for a long time. Like, a long, long time. 7,000 years or more. For a bit of historical context, we stopped hunter-gathering and settled down to be farmers about 10,000 years ago. Rather than try to cram 7,000 years and six occupied continents worth of history into a half-hour podcast, I'll hit some of the high points, especially the less well-known ones. The earliest gaming pieces ever found are 49 small carved painted stones found at a 5,000-year-old burial mound in southeast Turkey. Similar pieces have been found in Syria and Iraq and seem to point to board games originating in the Fertile Crescent. You remember the Fertile Crescent from the first week of World History class? It's the same region that discovered alcohol, invented papyrus, and made calendars, all of which you need if you're hosting game night. Other early dice games were created by painting a single side of a flat stick. These sticks would be tossed at once, and that would be your roll. Mesopotamian dice were made from a variety of materials, including carved knuckle bones, wood, painted stones, and turtle shells. No wonder folks used to say, roll them bones. Dice from the Roman era looks like the six-sided die we use today, though some of them had their corners cut off to be able to reach a higher number not unlike Dungeons & Dragons dice. Imagine excavating a distant Roman outpost and finding a d20. Serious crit. Board games became popular among the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. And that shouldn't be a surprise that board games were a bigger part of life for upper-class people, since they have both money for entertainment and time to play. Even before the First Dynasty, Egypt loved a game called Senet. It's even seen on the walls of tombs, and copies of the game are buried with noble people. 
Ancient Egyptians were strong believers in the concept of fate, and that your luck in the game of Sinet meant that you were under the protection of the major gods of the pantheon, Ra, Tot, and Osiris. The significance of the game is clear. The gameplay, not as clear. Historians have made educated guesses as to the rules, more on that later, and board game companies have used those guesses as a jumping-off place to make modern versions. Board games also became tied into religious beliefs. One such game was Mehen, played around 3000 BCE. Mehen was a protective god, depicted as a snake with coils around the sun god Ra during his journey through the night. The game and the god became intertwined. Tim Kendall, an ancient Egyptian historian, believes that it's not possible to know for sure with the information we have available whether the game was inspired by an existing deity or the deity was inspired by the game. Many people think Backgammon is the longest played of all the board games, with evidence that it existed around 2000 BCE. But there is an extant game that is a little bit older, relatively speaking. The Royal Game of Ur. The game gets its name from being found in the royal tombs of Ur in Iraq. There was also a set found in Pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb. The gameplay is simple, but very familiar. You're trying to get all of your pieces around the board first, bumping off your opponent's pieces along the way. Again, proving there's nothing new under the sun, the royal game of Ur was played with four-sided or tetrahedral dice. A d4 for the tabletop gamers out there. Even though the game is over 4,000 years old, amazingly, we found a copy of the rules. Irving Finkel of the British Museum deciphered a cuneiform tablet and discovered it was the rules for the Royal Game of Ur. He then saw a photograph of a nearly identical board game being played in modern India. That makes the Royal Game of Ur the longest played game in history. And there is a great video of Irving Finkel, who is ever so pleasantly mad, teaching YouTuber Tom Scott how to play. Link in the show notes. And a little clip right here, because I just couldn't help myself. All sorts of evidence has come to light so that we know how this game was played, and we can play it now with a great deal of excitement. Sometimes it brings out violence. Sometimes it brings out savagery. I have to say that this does occasionally occur. So we've decided to bring in a member of the public. I can't remember the chat's name. I'm Tom Scott. I make videos about science, technology and the world. Who's never played this game before. I have never played this game before. I'm going to give him a very swift overview of the rules, hope he masters them, and then I'm going to play. Of course, I'm going to play very gently at first because I don't want him to get upset. But if I have the slightest intimation that he's got the hang of it, I'm going to wipe the floor with him because it wouldn't do at all for me who discovered these rules. And after all, it's my game and I work in the British Museum, so there, I have to win. So there's not going to be any funny business with some sort of slate of hand or any of that kind of stuff. Just follow carefully. You'll see who is the superior player right from the start. Ludus Duodecim Scriptorum. The game of 12 markings was popular during the Roman Empire and is similar to, if not the progenitor, of modern backgammon. There were some minor differences, but as today, each player has 15 checkers and uses six-sided dice to be the first to bear off all of one's checkers. I confess that I am reading that from a website verbatim. I know less about backgammon than I do about cricket. Backgammon had a renewed surge of popularity in the 1960s, which is a hell of a long time for a comeback, thanks in part to the charisma of Prince Alexis Oblensky, 
the father of modern backgammon. Cigarette, liquor, and car companies began to sponsor tournaments, and Hugh Hefner held backgammon parties at the Playboy Mansion. At the same time that the Romans were playing Latin backgammon, the Chinese were playing Hui Xi, or as you may have heard of it, Go. Hui Xi may even predate the Game of Twelve Markings and the Royal Game of Ur. According to legend, which has a pesky habit of morphing into history, Guiji was created by the ancient Chinese emperor Yao to teach his son Danju discipline, concentration, and balance. The popularity of Guiji grew throughout Eastern Asia, especially in Japan, which is where the name Go comes from. Another ancient game, which is still out there and a favorite of nearly every household in my family, is the African game of Mancala. In our modern parlance, Mancala refers to a specific game. But the name actually belongs to an entire genre of games, a genre 800 traditional games strong. This family of board games is played around the world and is referred to as sewing games, S-O-W-I-N-G, which evokes the way that you pick up and drop the stones or playing pieces, like you were sowing seeds in the ground. The word mankala comes from the Arabic nakala, to move. Most mankala games share a common structure, where each player has game pieces in divots on the board and moves them to capture their opponent's pieces, leading them to also be called count and capture games. The boards can be wooden, clay, even just little holes in the dirt. Playing pieces have been everything from seeds, stones, shells, anything near at hand that fits in the holes. The earliest evidence of the game are fragments of a pottery board found in Eritrea dated to the 6th century CE. Though if the games were played with seeds on wooden boards or pebbles in divots in the dirt, the game could be even older. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence after all. That particular logical fallacy is called argument from ignorance, ad ignorantium, and it's not a good look. Now we go to the land of ice and snow, of the midnight sun where the hot springs flow. Scandinavians played a chess-like game called Neventaf at least as early as 400 CE. I'm sure my clever listeners haven't forgotten that Viking refers to the raids undertaken by a small portion of the population, themselves called Vikingers. Meaning King's Table, Nafatal was a war strategy game. The king's objective was to escape to the edge of the board, while the opponent's, plural, objective was to capture him. The attacking force had the natural advantage at the start of each game, perhaps mimicking a cultural mindset of a small group being victorious against a larger force, like, say, a few boats full of Vikingers against the army of an English king. Scandinavians spread the game to Ireland, Britain, and Wales through, let's call it, unexpected cultural exchange. Archaeologists have also discovered that it was popular as far to the east as Ukraine. So say you're an archaeologist, you've found some game pieces and a relatively intact board. Now what? It's not like there's a little paper instruction book. And even if there had been, paper doesn't do well over hundreds of years. So how do we know how to play these games whose creators have been gone for hundreds, even thousands of years? That's how we know anything. Specifically, digital archaeolidology, a new field that uses modern computing to understand ancient games. Cameron Brown is the principal investigator of the Digital Ludem Project, 
a research project based at the Maastricht University of the Netherlands that's using computational techniques to recreate the rules of ancient board games. To assist in this work, Brown and his colleagues are working on a general-purpose system for modeling ancient games, as well as generating plausible rule sets and then testing them. The system is called LUDI, L-U-D-I-I, and it implements computational techniques from the worlds of genetic research and artificial intelligence. The first part of the process is to codify the odds and bodkins that have been found at a dig as units called LUDEMs. It could be LUDEMs, I couldn't find the pronunciation, when I tried to Google it, I got back a word in Esperanto. But essentially, the LUDEMs are known things, and they're codified into the database. Cultural information from the area where the game was played is also recorded to help judge the plausibility of the rules that the computer spits out. Using techniques from algorithmic procedural generation, which I won't even pretend to understand, to come up with different rule sets to test out. This is where modern AI comes in and helps us evaluate these games from a new perspective, Brown said, to possibly help us arrive at a more realistic reconstruction of how the game was played. Next, the teams use algorithms to assess the generated rule sets. Artificial intelligence plays through the games with the different variations of the rules and builds lists of moves. As the AIs play through, they generate data about the game's quality to help the researchers determine if that rule set is a good one. But do the computers understand fun? Fun is subjective, of course, but Brown believes that there are universals. Games should have strategy, a bit of conflict, a dash of hope for that last-minute come-from-behind victory, a clear winner, and be limited to a reasonable amount of time. Looking at you, Monopoly. The programs developed by the Digital Ludum Project are not meant to be a replacement for human intuition and cleverness, but rather a complement to it. What we're trying to provide as part of the project is a tool for the toolbox of historians and archaeologists, so they can make more informed reconstructions based on the evidence they have. The project also works to preserve the games whose rules we do know. Already, the Digital LUDEM project has rounded up all known games discovered or invented before 1875. The Industrial Revolution tends to be the tipping point from when games went to shared and traditional to proprietary. The best part of the LUDEM project? You can actually play some of these ancient and old-timey games. Go to ludii.games. Not a sponsor. Brown's team has created hundreds of variations of historical games, and they're free for everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
Sincere and heartfelt thanks go out to my patrons who have continued their financial support even in this difficult time, and I value each and every one of you. The most recent bonus episode at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts was about a particular toilet paper substitute, the three seashells. Remember that from Demolition Man? I found the answer. It's only available at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Don't forget, there are still a few days to review your favorite podcasts over at podchaser.com, and they will then donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels and another 25 cents for every time a podcaster responds, which you know that I'll do. So pop over to podchaser.com and review all of your favorite shows. Big, big shout out to all of our winners from the first week of the Your Brain on Facts Trivia Contest. If you were one of the winners, or maybe you think you were one of the winners, and you didn't get an email from me about it, check in your spam folder. It's probably in there. Don't forget, you can always join us at the Brainiac Break Room group over on Facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Break Room to see interesting extra facts that I find during the week, as well as to share interesting things that you find, like the automatic egg cracking and separating machine that Terrell Jackson found a video of. How did you do on last week's Mystery Monday? The clues were a hen looking at a nest of eggs, a calculator, and the movie poster for The World's End. The topic was doomsday predictions, all of which were thankfully inaccurate. I know I can be a little precious with the clues. In my head, in my head at least, it all links up. Organizing Thanksgiving one year for my large family, I declared that after the meal, we'd play a board game. One of my sisters said, can't we just have a fistfight like a normal Irish family? I said, yeah, how do you think the fistfight starts? We were joking, mostly, but the wholesome pastime of board games really does inspire violence. Fights and assaults are more common than you would think. Looking at just one page of Google search results, in 2017, a North Carolina man stabbed his girlfriend when a game of Monopoly led to an argument. Monopoly was also the cause of assaults by two women on their separate boyfriends in 2014, one in Georgia and the other in New Hampshire. A man smashed his wife over the head with a bottle and she attacked him with a knife after one caught the other cheating, and so many more. A man playing life with his family in Indiana got into an argument with his wife that ended in assault after he bemoaned landing on the space that saddles you with a wife and kids. A West Virginia man ended up in jail for assaulting his wife after she flipped the table, literally, and a chair, after he accused her of cheating, which they did in front of the couple that they had invited over to play. And a Pacific Union College student broke his roommate's nose over an undisclosed game. Again, that is just the first page of Google search results. And for those of you trying to get ahead of me, yeah, people have been murdered over board games. And that shouldn't be too surprising, really. The human animal will kill one another for absolutely asinine reasons. A Maryland man was stabbed to death over a Popeye's chicken sandwich. And they're not even that good. Come at me. Now, you might expect Monopoly to be the primary catalyst here. But the first deaths I found when researching were over games of chess, and they're going to make me keep an eye on people who enjoy playing chess. Two men in Iowa were playing chess drunk, as you do, when they started to fight and one man died of his injuries. A prisoner in Ohio killed his cellmate during a game, 
though in the game's defense, it's believed the man was intentionally trying to get the death penalty. A Dublin, Ireland man beat his landlord to death with a dumbbell over a game, then cut him open and ate his lung, thinking it was his heart. Now for balance and a little palate cleansing, one Minnesota man tried to end his legal troubles with a board game rather than start them when he gave police a Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. He'd been carrying it for a while, just in case he ever got picked up on his outstanding warrants. Police gave him an A for effort while they were booking him. Speaking of Monopoly, many of us have experienced learning that we're wrong about the rules of the game, but rarely do we experience being wrong about the whole point of a game. Monopoly encourages players to consume like Galactus, hoard like dragons, and charge rent like Ebenezer Scrooge. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Monopoly was designed to warn players about the dangers of capitalism, not to train them in it. Its creator, Elizabeth Magee, thought it was unfair that landlords raked in profits by simply owning land, much of which was inherited or purchased with rent from other property. The game was supposed to be a satirical indictment, and she thought that when people played it, they would, quote, see clearly the gross injustice of our present land system. Granted, she really misread the room, but we appreciate the effort. The original version used paper money like the modern game, but instead of passing go and collecting $200, you passed labor upon Mother Earth produces wages and got $100. One corner square read, no trespassing go to jail, which was meant to signify foreign ownership of American soil. Maggie patented the game in 1904 and published it through a small game maker. It proved to be popular, but only really in left-leaning circles and on college campuses, among the people who got what Maggie was going for. She began to shop it around to license to a larger publisher, but Parker Brothers told her it was too complicated, and they passed. Over time, Maggie moved on with her life and forgot about the landlord's game. That didn't stop it from circulating, nor did the patent stop it from being copied. People who played it began making their own versions, one of which was eventually seen by a Philadelphian named Charles Darrow in 1933. Darrow was introduced to the game by a friend, and when he asked to see the rules, was surprised to learn that none had ever been printed, possibly ever. In Darrow's mind, this meant the game was up for grabs, or at least sufficiently unguarded. A sort of anything-not-nailed-down-and-anything-I-can-pry-up mentality. He added some colors to the board and suggested people use little items from around the house, perhaps trinkets from a charm bracelet. He passed the game off as his own creation and began selling it. It was already selling well in department stores in the famed New York toy store F.A.O. Schwartz when Parker Brothers offered to buy it from Darrow in 1935 for $7,000, around $121,000 today. Not a bad payday for a minimal amount of work. So what changed the company's mind on the overly complicated game? A friend of Sally Barton, the daughter of founder George Parker and wife of company president Robert Barton, liked the game and told Sally she should tell her husband about it. I guess it really is who you know. It was Parker Brothers who added the playing pieces you would recognize, like the shoe, the top hat, and the iron, as well as the chance and community chest cards, and a cartoon character called Rich Uncle Pennybags though he was originally used on a game called Rich Uncle. Before long, they were printing 20,000 copies a week. 
Parker Brothers went about securing their own rights to the game, only to find out that Darrow, the man they bought it from, didn't own it. They also had to fight off infringement claims from people with similar games, some of which were based on modified versions of Maggie's landlord game. Parker Brothers eventually tracked Maggie down and paid her $500 and no royalties, but with a promise that they would make a version of the landlord game. It may surprise you to learn that they were true to their word, and in 1939, Parker Brothers published The Landlord's Game. It sold like salty pretzels at a slug convention. Most of the 10,000 printed copies were returned by the retailers who couldn't get rid of them. Darrow, meanwhile, made millions, even after Parker Brothers understandably reduced his royalties for, you know, selling them a stolen game. Over 250 million copies have been issued in many languages and different themes, but all without the original message. My second favorite thing about doing this show is finally getting the answer to questions that have been stowed away in my brain for years, but for some reason I never bothered to Google. My first favorite thing, of course, is interacting with listeners, which you can do over on Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. It makes my day when I get a message. One longtime mystery is why the British version of Clue is called Cluedo. Why would you ruin a perfectly descriptive word by turning it into a nonsense word? This isn't like pavement versus sidewalk, lift versus elevator, chip versus fry, both of which are equally good at describing their respective thing. Why would you change it to Cluedo? Well, it turns out, Cluedo is the original name, and it's justified. The classic whodunit game was created in the early 1940s when a British musician and munitions factory worker, Anthony Pratt, had some forced time on his hands. Who forced it? The Luftwaffe. He and his wife, Elva, began working on the game so that they could play while waiting out the air raids. Pratt filed a patent on the game in 1944, listing the weapons as the significantly more visceral axe, cudgel, small bomb, rope, dagger, revolver, hypodermic needle, poison, and fireplace poker. The characters were also different from what we're familiar with. Dr. Black, Mr. Brown, Mr. Gold, the Reverend Mr. Green, Miss Gray, Professor Plum, Miss Scarlet, Nurse White, Mrs. Silver, and Colonel Yellow. Now you may have noticed that was a lot to keep track of. The original ten were whittled down to six. Colonel Yellow was changed to Colonel Mustard, so that one of Her Majesty's officers didn't sound like a coward. Pratt sold Cluedo to game manufacturer Waddington's, though it wasn't released until 1948 due to materials shortages from the war. The name Cluedo was a portmanteau of Clue and Ludo, a 19th century game whose name was Latin for I Play. When Parker Brothers picked up the rights to the game in America in 1949, they shortened it to Clue, rightly suspecting that people wouldn't know about Ludo. The game has gone on to spawn world championships, a British TV show, a musical that invited audience participation and played over 500 shows, and of course, the classic movie. Initially though, the movie wasn't a classic. Settle in kids, I've got about a whole bonus paragraph here. Director Jonathan Lynn thought it would be a keen idea to release three different versions to the theater, each with one of the different endings. 
but not to tell moviegoers in advance which version they were buying a ticket for. Somewhere in his mind, he thought people would just keep buying tickets and sitting through movies until they had seen all the endings. The public didn't go for it, and Clue left theaters quickly. It found its way to home video when it was still a nascent market. The movie didn't do too well there, either, which resulted in copies being marked down for clearance. That was a couple of years in, and VCRs had become more popular then. So more people have VCRs, this movie is cheap, everyone bought it, everyone watched it, everyone loves it. If you tell me you don't, well, just don't tell me. In 2008, the US version got a makeover. The murder now takes place at a celebrity party. Colonel Mustard has morphed into a football player. Professor Plum has become a dot-com billionaire. Some of the weapons have been swapped out, and Mrs. White, originally a murderous housekeeper, was replaced with Dr. Orchid, which is the first time since the game launched that a character has gotten the boot. In the late 90s, after selling a hundred million Clue games, Waddington tracked down Pratt. He'd fallen off the map after his patent on the game expired in the 1960s, which meant no more royalties. He also never got royalties for the international versions of the game, having signed away those rights in 1953 for £5,000, about $135,000 today. He didn't know that it was selling like hotcakes across the pond. But Pratt didn't mind. A great deal of fun went into it, he said in a 1990 interview. So why grumble? The Waddington Company also did their bit to keep up the British end in World War II. Did they repurpose machinery or supplies the way companies pivoted to help with the COVID-19 crisis, like distilleries making hand sanitizer? No, they contributed games. But not just to keep up the morale. During the war, a fair few RAF jockeys and second dickies took a flaming onion to the kite and pranked sausage side. I'm just not understanding banter at all well today. Give us it slower. (laughs) Bally Jerry! Prang his kite, right in the house your father, hairy blighter, dicky birded, feathered back on his sammy, took a war spin, flipped over on his Betty Harpers, and caught his can in the Bertie. <laughs> no, I don't understand that banter at all. Something up with my banter, chaps. Crashed behind enemy lines and ended up in POW camps, is what I'm saying. Towing the line with the Geneva Convention, Germany allowed humanitarian aid groups like the Red Cross to distribute care packages to the prisoners. One category of permissible item was games and pastimes. So the Allies took strategic advantage of the opportunity. Using made-up charities, they sent care packages to their POWs that make most prison escape plans look like a file baked in a cake that's shaped like a file. The games they sent over were secret escape kits, complete with compasses, metal files, money, and most importantly, maps. Wait, you say, surely the Germans would look at the care packages before giving them to prisoners? They could look all they wanted. The games looked perfectly normal. Inside games of Monopoly were compasses and files disguised as game pieces. French, German, and Italian banknotes were hidden underneath the Monopoly play money. The board concealed secret maps that would lead the men to freedom, alerting them to hazards and safe houses along the way. The game cartons were marked with secret codes that represented each German prison camp, 
so that MI9, the British Secret Service unit specializing in evasion and escape, would know which particular set was to go to which prison camp, based on their reconnaissance of the camp and the needs of an escaping prisoner. But why Monopoly? The game hadn't been on England's pleasant pastures for even a decade. It was still thoroughly American. Except maybe for the Scotty dog, I guess. The game wasn't the first consideration. The manufacturer was. Waddington's was the only company to have perfected printing on silk. This detail would be critical. The material of the maps needed to be more resilient than paper, not prone to tearing or subject to dissolving when wet, but thin enough to be shoved in a boot, pocket, cigarette pack, etc. at a second's notice. Silk maps also don't make noise, which is handy when you're trying to slip away into the night. Waddington's could print the silk and, as it happened, was the UK licensee for Monopoly. Before going out on missions, Royal Air Force airmen were told that if they were captured, they should look for Monopoly games in their care packages. You would know if you had the escape kit version if there was a small red dot on the free parking space, which looked like nothing more than a tiny print error. Few copies of this life-saving game exist today, and for a good reason. Soldiers were instructed to destroy the games after they'd gotten all of the useful components out, so the guards couldn't figure out how they'd escaped, which would endanger men at every other camp the games were sent to. And Monopoly games weren't the only vehicles used to conceal escape maps. Decks of cards, snakes and ladders, even pencils could conceal maps. British historians estimate that these special edition Monopoly boards helped thousands of captured soldiers escape from camps. A real get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Believe it or not, even in this highly technological age, the CIA uses specially designed board and card games to train its officers. Unlike other exercises that focus on the individual, games like these depend on teamwork. David Klopper, the CIA's special senior collection analyst who launched the program in 2008, said that when people took the time to talk to one another, they tended to win. The tables where someone would go on their own or didn't collaborate until too late, they couldn't catch up to the crises. It was a simulation of what we do, but also teaching the importance of working together. Might make you wonder who you're sitting across from at that new board game cafe, though. Remember, you can always find the script and the source notes at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.